Welcome to the Mo Podcast. A place where individual stories come to life. This is how we need to be communicating with people. This is how we support people's personal development. It's important to speak about people believing in people. The more you're able to let go of your limitation, the more you step into your power, your inner authentic power. Mo, a place for me, others, everyone. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Mopod Ventures. Now in today's episode we've got a really exciting conversation between Robin Chu and Darren and they will be discussing some really interesting topics around the education system and what we can do to support the education system and what Robin has done in his journey as a social entrepreneur. He talks a little bit about the pitfalls, the failures, the lessons that he learned along the way and also reflects on how much he has made a difference. We really hope that you enjoy it and buckle in for a fantastic episode. So welcome to the Mo Foundation podcast or pod adventure as I'm calling it because uh, podcast just sounds so ordinary. Today I'm really pleased to have Robin on the call with me and uh, Robin is somebody that uh, got involved with Mo many years ago. I can't even remember when it was so I'm looking forward to finding out when that was Um, and he has gone on to create a wonderful organization and he's the CEO and founder of Coach Bright. So really looking forward to kind of finding out more about that. So Robin welcome to the, um, the pod adventure. Delighted to be here Darren and yeah pod adventure rather than podcast. I think that makes it sound so much more inviting. I can't wait. So, Robin, you know, this is for the Mo community, which is, uh, or Mo family, as people like to call it, which is lovely. Um, and uh, I always feel a bit strange saying that because I don't want it to sound like it's some sort of weird cult because it really isn't. But, um, and I don't think it necessarily means that, but um, it's quite funny. But, uh, you know, you tell us about you. Tell us where you grew up first off. Um, let's start there. Yeah. Um... So I, before I forget, Darren, it was 2015, I think I, I joined Mo. Um, so <laughs> I I grew up in the southeast um, in a little village, little town called Wokingham near near Reading. Uh, so in Berkshire. And um, I think what's really important to say about kind of growing up. So my parents are owners of a, of a local Chinese takeaway um, and that was really kind of the the start that I remember in life, really, that every kind of Friday, Saturday, because um, mum mom and dad would, would work, right? Mum would work on the counter and dad would work in the in the kitchen as the as the chef. I would um in terms of kind of childcare, I would have to kind of sit kind of underneath the counter. There was this little kind of archway bit that kind of hid me, and I kind of sat kind of there playing on my um playing on my Game Boy, I think if you remember that, um, was kind of my my childhood. Um and that that was how I spent kind of a lot a lot a lot of time really in that kind of Chinese takeaway and kind of staying there. And then I think um I think in terms of this podcast, it reminded me of kind of moments, kind of transition moments, kind of key moments in, in life. I think a really big one for me was going to university. So at the age of 18, I was the second in my family to go to university. My brother was the was the first. And I went to I went to the University of Exeter, way down in the southwest, which was a good three and a half hour drive away, which my mum, you know, never stopped telling me how far away it was. You've chosen the almost the furthest away point to go. 
Um, and that was, Darren, I think one of the most kind of eye-opening, life-changing moments of, of my life. And the reason I say that is, it's really important to say kind of early doors, right at the start of this pod adventure, that um, university changed me. It kind of made me who I am, really. It gave me so much confidence, so much um, uh, discovery as to who, who I am and who I want to be. I think uh, no doubt there's there's no way I'd be doing this with you now if I hadn't if I hadn't have gone to university. Um, but also it, it taught it taught me something else, which is the the friends and people I was interacting with um, were, were very different than the people that my parents interacted with on a Friday and Saturday night in the takeaway. I think um, Exeter University is not is not known for its diversity and not known for its um, uh, uh, disadvantaged kind of communities um, and. I very quickly found myself in a very different environment than the one that my kind of parents parents knew. And um, that has always kind of stayed stayed with me as I've kind of grown into my kind of 20s. I'm 29 now, but um, in my in my first job, and this kind of neatly links back to 2015 and, and Mo, and why Mo was another kind of life-changing moment for me. But um, in my first job, I had a I had a coach. And this kind of res- will resonate with the Mo family, really. I had a, I had a coach, and like everyone else, I thought coaching was. I had this kind of forty-year-old guy came, and I thought he would kind of tell me the answer, the secret to life, the secret to how to be successful in my, in my career in a in a startup at the time. And um, obviously, it was the it was not that at all. It was just a lot of listening, a lot of frank conversation, a lot of him allowing me space to discover who who I am and and what I stood for and what I care about and you know what's stopping me from doing that and um that led to the wonderful thing of 2014 which was the birth of coach bright which was um after discovering what coaching was I thought wow this amazing thing that only exists in elite sport and and still back then kind of big big business executive business that's kind of senior leadership level how can we take this idea and apply it to a completely different context, which is serving schools in really deprived and really disadvantaged areas, um, which really kind of, for me, stood out from my time at university, you know, being in a, coming from a completely different community to the one that I was in at Exeter. And that really was the birth of Coach Bright in 2014, is let's take coaching away from the kind of corporate world and uh, and apply the best of coaching to supporting young people from disadvantaged backgrounds to um to achieve their best and um that's kind of where where my head's been for the last um last seven years if you believe it Darren seven years Coach Bright's been running and undoubtedly the kind of other stepping stone on that was joining Mo at 2015 and actually learning how to be a coach and surrounding myself with far better people than myself and um uh, with all that, I, I, was, I was so glad that you asked me to come and come and speak, and yeah, can't can't wait to get into it. Wonderful, Robin. So, um, just want to just reel back just a bit because I think it's really fascinating. So, um, did either of your parents go to university? No, ni- neither of my parents went. Um, so, both my parents are from Hong Kong, and they um, they they left Hong Kong young. I think my mum left when she was fifteen. My dad left when he was. 1718 but but that was really their their education history really they kind of left left school at those ages and they 
what you would call the the school of life really they just kind of started working they they um worked in kind of restaurants and takeaways throughout their entire life um at, in west germany at the time actually and then they they moved over to england uh and then uh then they got to the position where they owned their own takeaway but uh but yeah the the world of university and lecturers and seminars and all that kind of language and vocabulary was um completely outside the grasp of, of my parents no that's uh, and the reason i want to ask that is because when we get into coach bright and the wider system that you you're creating i want i want to dive into that because one of the things i'm fascinated with is what stimulus you get from parents because uh you know the stimulus i got growing up was you will work for my dad and then my mum's was you will love and travel <laughs> you know it was great go and see the world sort of thing um but there wasn't any focus i didn't even know what university was robin um so just wondering where because you said your brother was the first um and then you went i don't know if there's any more siblings um, so I was just curious as to what was your parents sort of messaging around education and the importance of it? Yeah, I mean, there was no doubt in our household that education was the silver bullet, really. And and even though, and that's quite interesting, because even though my parents never really achieved anything academically in terms of their qualifications, they saw education as a way to better yourself and to reach your kind of potential beyond your kind of current circumstances and that was kind of drilled into us at a really early age the idea of look if you work hard and you do well then then things will follow and and then after that you might be able to think about your passions and where you want to go and I think that that kind of mentality of working hard and education being a silver bullet I still hold true to today and you know, despite that, and there are many, despite the many flaws of the UK education system, I think when done right, education can be the thing that can lift you out of poverty, can be the thing that can lift you out of um, a really challenging situation. Um, and there's no doubt, my mum especially, she kind of grounded me in that, that for all her all her love, kindness and, and compassion, that was the real lesson really, that... Um, if you if you work hard then you can go on to achieve what you want and i think that um that yeah that that obviously applies in school life but i think obviously just generally as well yeah no i'm struck and also i'm struck by um because quite often with parents and being one of three young daughters i'm, I'm sort of semi-conscious but without being nerdy or strange with it is that that quite often it's our behaviors that they watch not what we say it's what we do um, and I'm struck by the story of you sitting there with your Game Boy underneath the counter as your parents worked, you know, front counter and, you know, in, in the kitchen. You know, that that what did that teach you about that hard work, that persistence, that entrepreneurial spirit? Absolutely. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit is the, is the main one that, that look, when you when you're the owner of a small business um as you know Darren it's kind of the uh as my parents were right that you it is the kind of life and soul of what you do it kind of grounds every conversation every thought that you have in, in so many ways because you, you care so much about it and you could see that in the way that you know where I was sat I had direct line of sight to the way that my mum would interact with every single customer on a Friday and Saturday night and as you can imagine the people that would come into us Chinese takeaway on Friday, Saturday night really vary from, you know, young families to people doing shift work to people who are going to have just come back from the pub. And, 
you know, she had an amazing way to build rapport, build relationships and to interact with every single one of them to the point where you would see customers come in who were the the usual suspects and that and she would have their order for them before they even got to the got to the counter she'd be like oh yeah we've um yeah this is what you want isn't it and then she's already it's already cooking in the background and i mean that taught me a lot about um she didn't have to do that you know you can you know, we've all been into restaurants where you know the staff aren't that bothered and they don't really care and you you can tell and that's that's fine right um but she made a conscious effort every single day to turn up and to do her job well and to make people feel like they were cared for. And, you know, a Saturday night in a Chinese takeaway is, is a busy environment. The, the phones are ringing all the time. There are sometimes people who are pre-COVID, people queuing outside the door. Um, but she still managed to maintain that sense of composure and putting the customer first and that that kind of while while I was sat there, you know, pushing my buttons on the Game Boy, I think probably subconsciously I learned I learned something there about look, you gotta treat people well, you you know, you gotta work hard for what you want and you know, all those lessons while I wasn't actively doing it because I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, um, I think I kind of saw just through through what was happening. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And then just uh, just to pick up one more one more question in that area. So you you talked about um, you know people coming from uh, deprived areas. So the area that you grew up, I don't know it. So was your school in a deprived area? Where does that passion for um, supporting people that are in deprived areas come from? Yeah. So um, so it wasn't with me actually. I think that and that is important to say. So I I ended up going to a private school called Wellington college um which was in the kind of local area and that again speaks to that you know all the money that my mum and dad had they they essentially invested in in me and kind of sending me to private school and and doing that and that belief that education is the is the silver bullet and that that was always a strange one in that um school was very confusing in a lot of ways I didn't particularly enjoy it I didn't particularly well I got lots out of it sure but I yeah didn't particularly have a happy experience there and I think part of that was just that culture clash of um the people I was interacting with were, were very different than the people that I knew in my kind of home and, and family life um, and I, and I think that and I think as importantly that kind of university bit that I think something really stood out for me at university which is I really questioned that idea of if you work hard you kind of get what you want essentially that how could that be the case when the people here all come from a, a certain kind of affluent type of type of background essentially um and it and you know that I still think about that today really is is the answer just is working hard enough and I think there's a bit of nuance there that yes I think maybe on an individual level it plays a part but there are also big system-wide challenges that still now and 2021 if you're born poor you're likely to stay poor and if you're born rich you're likely to stay rich and there's loads of kind of research and stats that that back that up and I think that was the thing that really struck me going to university which is there's a degree of look some people have just been dealt a, a better hand here and <laughs> we need to play a part in leveling that playing field or like I, I felt a strong sense of we need to create a fairer system we need to create a fairer education system 
because um, there are so many young people where talent isn't the issue, you know, it's like they are trapped in a system that doesn't, doesn't help them. And um, if we can play a part in kind of helping them on an individual level of embodying more responsibility, more independence, all, all of that, then um, we might have a shot of kind of making education and, and therefore society much, much fairer. Um, so yeah, for me, it was really that kind of personal university starkness that kind of struck a chord with me. So then, so you finished university and I know Exeter because my, the mum of two of our, so Annalisa and Anya's, so she went to Exeter. So I know it. Um, I know a little bit about that sort of background, never, never been there myself, but um, so I kind of get a sense of some of the things you've said there and uh, I'll skirt over some of the things that I also think implicit in what you were sharing about your school life. Cause I, I, I don't necessarily know if we need to kind of focus on that, but just conscious, yeah, I mean, cultural difference and things like that was, was sort of coming to my mind as I was listening to your experience and um, maybe maybe that will come out at some point. But um, so you, you finished university. What did you study at university? I studied history and politics, which yeah. um, uh, was obviously very confusing for my parents, Darren, because they were like, what career are you going to get out of history and politics? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is obviously a social entrepreneur, <laughs> which doesn't help. <laughs> but uh, yes, history yeah. and politics. So, you, so what year is it? You come out of university. What year? It was it was in the barnstorming year of 2012. So, if, if I bring you yeah. back to Usain Bolt and the London 2012 yeah. Olympics, it was it was that year where yeah. uh, the whole country seems to be united around the Olympics. Um, and and uh, yeah. So after that, I actually something I haven't mentioned is I've got another passion, which is which is sport. And so mm-hmm. I for a a nine-month period, I was a sport producer for BBC Radio Berkshire. So I um, I can give you all the niche knowledge about Reading Football Club 2012-2013 season when they got promoted to the Premier League. Um, uh, but yeah, that's that's what I did straight out of university, and then um, and then and then after that, I um, I worked for an organisation called Year Here, which is a a social leadership um, uh, scheme. And then after that, I did Coach Bright. So it's all all pretty short and snap, really. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's, you're starting to join the dots that I, I wanted to sort of connect. Um, and I think in terms of your, your knowledge, I think that's probably a very small niche, Robin, that we're talking about there that would be interested in, in those results. But, um, that you know, let's not get into that either. Um, the um, So at what point, you know, in your journey, whether it was at university or it was when you came out in 2012 and joined Year Here, the social leadership, at what point, did this sort of idea start really germinating or was it germinating a lot longer before that? You know, that point of actually, I'd, you know, what I'd love to bring to the world is to be a social entrepreneur. Um, no, 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 Darren, definitely not. I mean, well, it's, it's hard to say because I guess we do join the dots backwards, right? But mm. I, I'm definitely not someone who wanted to run my own business or wanted to, to do that. I think you know, I, th- I almost feel like I accidentally fell into Coach Bright and, and ironically now would, would not do anything else. But um, I think undoubtedly throughout school and university, I felt a sense of, and whether that was as big as, you know, educational disadvantage, I felt a sense of injustice or, um, you know, life not being fair for certain groups of people. I think that... Um, you know, came from my own experiences at school and university. And I think that kind of struck me. Um, 
But I think that the trigger was really learning about the idea and practice of of coaching. So at year here, I, I had an executive coach. Mm. And I think what really struck me about coaching was that there is such high trust and such a high belief in the individual in front of you is whole and will think and will ultimately figure out the answer will ultimately kind of get to the solution they need to get to by themselves yes with some prompting yes with some questioning yes with some deep um reflexing and introspection but ultimately they're the ones that are going to figure it out and i just found that so powerful i mean so powerful for me personally in that it taught me so much about i'm the barrier to my own success but also so much in that it was it was so different than the education and and to a degree the parenting that I kind of grew up with as well where the culture had been very much of you know experts know best and and to kind of tell to you were just given instruction and you know your job was to implement those instructions and and to do that that actually this idea that an individual has power and autonomy and an ability to decide for themselves what they want and, and how to get there. I, I just found that fascinating. And I found that, especially in the context of what we're talking about, supporting communities where a lot of the time the kind of very traditional narrative is, you know, communities are are lazy or don't want to get on or, or, you know, all of that, I, I, which obviously is, is ridiculous. Um, I always thought coaching was just such a great way to activate people's innate, you know, passions and innate desires and innate kind of potential, really. Um, so that trigger of having a coach, I think, was really illuminating. But I don't think it would have led to Coach Bright if it wasn't for the personal experiences I'd gone through at university and school and down to Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so 2014, you have the the, the kind of idea is born and coach bright coach bright is born um so how did that start and that started in a so the idea the idea was born and it's important to say that you know there there isn't one kind of particular moment it was talking to loads of different people for example um anton who you know really well you know played a really big part the star and and others like what like Juan, who was that student funder at the time, played a really big part. So kind of surrounding myself with people who, you know, were far more entrepreneurial, far more creative and, you know, just having, just being in their presence really and having conversations with them play, played a big part. And then the um, the first kind of tangible moment was we we did a, we did a pilot at a school in South London in, um, in Elephant and Castle. And it was with 10 pupils and, I have never prepared or worked as hard, Darren, for, for that that moment. I think it was on a Wednesday afternoon. And and it was abysmal. And we, we you know, we had a program down for I think six weeks. And each week there were less young people came each week. <laughs> and you know, this was meant to be the grand, you know, we coaching is gonna change the way we see education. This was a 22-year-old me who thought that I had all the answers and, and coaching was the way to do it. And you know, we were gonna right the wrongs of the education system. And um, it it just didn't work. Well, it didn't work in part. So some pupils loved it. Some pupils found the idea of what do you want? What do you hope to achieve after school? Where do you want to go? They found they loved that kind of big picture, abstracts, 
almost philosophical way of approaching something. Um, and then the majority just found it too big. They just found, they just didn't quite understand the purpose and the point of it. And they were like, look, I'm just, I'm struggling in, in maths. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing very well at biology. I don't know why you're talking to me about where I want to be when I'm 25. And, and, and they didn't get it. And that was such a fascinating realization that we couldn't just take from coaching from the worlds of business and just you know essentially apply that into school we had to we had to create our own way of doing it our own way of taking the best bit of coaching from business and and applying it into the context that we're talking about um but really that moment in 2014 when you know you set yourself up for this you know shiny pilot and then it all it all kind of comes crashing down on you that was the that was a great lesson in uh learning from failure i think of look it's never gonna you know, the idea that you had in your head is probably never going to be the same in reality. And, and there's beauty in that and there's learning in that. And, that, and that's and that's great. Um, uh, and in fact, you know, we still work with that school now, funnily enough, um, kind of seven years on. But um, but yeah. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, uh, the the sort of lofty ambitions, the philosophy and the reality of life collide. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And 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 you'll know this having worked with yourself at Mo, but kind of working with kind of small small businesses and even big businesses is you know that you know you can have a presentation and you can have a wonderful powerpoint but really it's when you when you test it in a in a workshop or in a you know in the app that you've made or, or whatever it is that you kind of see the proof in <laughs> is it any is it actually any good um and in our case it was it was far from it at the time <laughs> Yeah, that's a lovely story um, and a good lesson for, for other people that are sort of maybe at that stage as well, where they've just had something crash and burn or, or actually just not turn out quite as I'd anticipated. Um, and, it, and it will talk talk to sort of persistence and, and learning from those moments, I think, as well. So so you've tested an elephant and castle in the school. That's not quite gone to plan. So what was what was the next step? The, the next was that overriding feedback of there, there was something there that you know it wasn't that you know coaching was a write-off and 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 all of that there was something there in that the pupils did enjoy space and time to think about who they were and what they wanted to do but the bit that was missing was 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 context really was it was too big picture so the kind of main lesson there was we had to relate what coaching was to that 15 year old which to be honest, would be their kind of subject specific challenges. So actually how they were doing in maths, English and science. And that's kind of stayed the course of time, really, which is now the way our coaching programmes are set up is that, yes, it is coaching, but it is geared in the space of kind of maths, English and, and science at kind of GCSE level and for A level, it's for, for A level. So it is still very much about listening first, getting the learner to figure out the answer for themselves and challenging them to feel that, you know, that struggle of learning of, of not knowing yet, but it's all grounded in, in the subject because that's, that's the kind of reality that, that the pupils know, right. That that's kind of where the focus is. So that was the bit that um, the lesson that was really learned in 2014 was we have to ground the experiences in, in the reality of the young people that we're, um, we're working with. And that's what we did. Um, and um, after Elephant Castle, we worked with uh, two other schools in, in London, um, one in 
one in West London in kind of Hardington area, uh, and then another in, in East London. And um, that experience, so the one in Harlington was particularly interesting because that was one of those like pure joy moments, Darren, in that um, the head teacher, and again, this was a kind of 22 year old me who had, you know, just dreamt up this idea and, you know, was on a wing and a prayer really. But um, this um, this head teacher said, said yes to the programme and amazingly said yes to paying for the programme. And um, we, um, uh, so while our first pilot was was kind of unpaid, our kind of second work was was paid and they paid a thousand pounds at the time. And that was, I remember leaving that meeting um, and calling my partner and, and it was raining, but I, it was almost a, a scene out of a movie in that I was so happy. It was almost kind of dancing on the streets of Harlington. So if someone was videoing it, they would have thought I was absolutely mad. Um, that the fact that there was actual validation that, look, a head teacher was willing to kind of part with her budget to, to really go with our work. I mean, I, I just felt so proud in that moment. Um, and, um, and obviously the beauty of charging, which I've learned now, is it also forces you to up your game. It also forces you to look, you've got to deliver now. It's not a case of you can now um, mug them off. You know, you actually have to like do really good work and then stay in that school. And and that kind of, that's what we did. Um, well, that's what I think we did. And um, that's kind of where we've been, where we've been going for the last kind of six, seven years. Um, and um yeah and that and that that was just such a wonderful moment really so we'll um we'll go on to that journey in a minute and uh, and i'll get you to sort of bring us up to speed and then we'll work backwards actually um but um so mo you discovered mo 2015 you said is that right correct yeah so how did how did um how did our lives collide and or how did mo's life and your life collide so i got introduced to mo through my friend anton at the time who helped me kind of set up coach bright and um i remember going and and you know when you have a moment when I, I think i'm broadly quite an optimistic glass half full person anyway but i think you have moments when you realize that ah i don't really believe in stuff like universes colliding and any of that but like and um, but you have a moment when you're like ah this just speaks to everything i've been seeking or this speaks to kind of who i want to be and where i want to go and i remember it was it was James and Denny were the lead trainers at the time. And, you know, James is great, but but Denny, Denny is a professional. Denny is amazing. And um, just the way that she carried some of the kind of demo sessions, kind of coaching sessions at the, you know, at the top of the workshop where we would all watch. I was just like, this, this is incredible, you know, that you can hold a room like this with, you know, teaching them about how to listen, teaching them about how to, how to actually pause and allow for silence and, ask kind of questions and then sit with the uncomfortableness of the person not knowing the answer. I just found it absolutely incredible. Cause obviously I, I had coaching, so I, I'd experienced it on the other side, but I think there's something about being a recipient and you don't really know what's going on. And then when you actually peel back the curtain and you can see this, this is how the, the process is constructed. Um, it taught me, so much about yes where you know where coach bright is, is going and, and all of that but also taught me so much about we are missing so much of this in the way that we interact day to day like we can uncover so much about people if we give them the time and the space to just be and to really kind of talk and 
that that was groundbreaking really and and um obviously some of the people on that course and some of the trainers on that course like Jeffrey and others I'm still in I'm still in touch with now um but that that was really kind of while I had coaching before and I thought it was a great idea that moment with Mo really encapsulated look I'm on the right path here and look there are there are actual people who do this for a living and are fantastic at it and you know my my aim is just to be half as good as people like Denny and to and to be half as good as that and um I think the other thing that struck me about the Mo training was just, I mean, just the kind of wraparound service of obviously it was geared by people who were super kind and obviously it was geared by people who were super compassionate and, and able to do that. And that was kind of just felt throughout the entire process and internally in the Coach Bright team, we talk a lot about relationships matter and how you come across to people matter and, and it almost speaks to a bit of, um, uh, kind of linking the dots of you know how my mum was with um customers back in the day you know how how you treat people and how you interact kind of really really counts and um I definitely felt that in the kind of mo calls I remember turning up on day one and you know I'm an introvert by heart Darren so you know I was quite quite meek and quiet kind of on the sidelines and you know small moments like Denny sitting me down and checking in at the start of day three and stuff like that you know really really mattered and really kind of played played a part really so yeah, fantastic and loved it all round. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And, and the other difference there is that actually what we're talking about, because some people will come into Mo for different reasons, is that what you you went through was the Mo certified coach training, wasn't it? So you were actually learning the philosophy, the skills, the capabilities, the tools of how you become a great coach yourself and how you use coaching, um, not necessarily just to become a coach, but actually to use it as a transferable life skill. And is the other thing just to check in? So, do your team also come through the Mo coaching as well? They do, yes. So we um, we've been a bit um, slack with it this year, but I try and make sure every year. So we're a team of sixteen now, but every year, um, our kind of staff team all go through the Mo exactly that the kind of five day um, coach training course. Um, and and that's because yes, we are a coaching company, and yes, we do that. But I think also it speaks to that coaching isn't just about if you want to become an accredited coach I think it actually can if you learn it well shape how you have conversations and shape how you how you are and I think you know one of the areas that we talk about coaching quite a lot in the coach bright team is how do you interact with head teachers how do you build you know sales for next year and how do you how do you do that and, and a lot of it I would argue is is just coaching really is just actually can you listen well can you provide a space for the individual to truly share what they're concerned about and what they really want? And if you can do that, then, you know, you, you're pretty much going to be in a good place for any sort of conversation you need to have, really. Um, so, yes, it kind of transfers across not just myself, but our entire kind of staff team. I know some of our kind of volunteer university students, they've also gone in the Mo course. So, um, uh, and also kind of fellow fellow kind of partners and social entrepreneurs we've kind of provided introductions to to Mo as well so kind of stretches across our our community as well yeah no that's wonderful and, and completely agree you know when when um when I foolishly got up in January 2012 and said look we want to create this thing at that time called Ministry of Entrepreneurship um not really knowing what I, what I was trying to do or what what the next step really was um but what we did we were clear was that we wanted to 
to give the gift of coaching to as many people as possible and to take money off the table. Um, you know, because I, I think it's just such an essential to the point you're you're raising about how you listen, how you create space, how you truly listen, how you truly spend time in another person's world and forget your own inner landscape and be with them. I think they're absolutely fantastic skills. So our aim from a Mo perspective was never to create lots of coaches. That was never the aim. It's been a it's been a wonderful byproduct, and we're very proud of that community. Um, and we're equally proud of all the other people that have not gone on to become executive, professional, life, leadership, personal, marketing, whatever type of coach you want to become. A whole load of people have just used it as part of their life and improved their lives, their families' lives, and just, you know, hopefully use it for the long play, which was always part of the ambition. Um, so it's, I think it's good to kind of talk to that because it it talks to, to a lot of things that you're talking about, actually about being a decent human being and the love and the compassion that you saw your mum demonstrating to every person that came into the into the Chinese on a, on a weekend. So, bring us up to speed. So we've not spoken for some time. I think the last time you and I caught up was a was a webinar with the AC, which was probably three years ago now, um, maybe two and a half years ago. So bring me up to speed and bring us all up to speed on where is Coach Bright right now in terms of the size of the team. You just mentioned there's sixteen of you, which is just incredible, but you know paint that picture of what's being created with the wonderful team that you've created and how many schools you're supporting you know what's in your the kind of coach bright ecosystem mm. so it's it's we're now in year seven if you can believe it from 2014 and uh we are so first and foremost you know the kind of crucial tenants of we're a social mobility organization coaching is at the heart of what we do we want to help young people from disadvantaged backgrounds become more independent, more resilient, so they can lead the lives they want. That kind of has all held true since the days we started, really. And now we're, we've been quite lucky in quite a luxurious position during COVID in that we have grown. So we're now a team of 16, soon to be 17. And um, this academic year, we're supporting just over um, 2,000 plus pupils across um 60 odd 60 odd secondary and primary schools up and down the country so our work kind of stretches from the kind of southwest kind of exeter plymouth cornwall area to to london and the southeast to also the the west midlands kind of birmingham and surrounding areas there and um and what's been really amazing about that journey is we are we're only just getting started really down in a lot of ways that this this year we're turning over just over 600 fifty thousand pounds i think next year we're looking to to go over a million and to double that and that is in line with ultimately for us it's about how many young people we can support from disadvantaged backgrounds and the aim really is to get to a stage where we're we're in kind of ten percent um five to ten percent of kind of uk secondary schools we're at the moment in um, I think 2% by last by last count, but the aim is to get to kind of 10% of UK secondary schools um, while maintaining the, the quality of our work. I think, and I think that's really important to say that everything we do, and I think it, it's kind of almost made clear through this kind of pod adventure that everything we do is geared, geared through relationships and geared through having fantastic relationships with our young people and making sure they feel heard, making sure they have the space to truly express, you know, who they want to be and what's, and, what's holding them back but also fantastic relationships with our with our schools I think um 
as any parent would note that being a teacher is very hard work, I think, um, during COVID. And um, what our work is designed to do is meant to is kind of supplement the great work that schools do on the ground, that our work is not meant as a way to say that, you know, schools aren't very good and, you know, all of that. It's all meant to be a kind of supplementary way to enable them to kind of support their young people better. And that's the bit I'm particularly proud of, that over the course of these seven years, we have retained um, 85, 90% of the schools that we work with. And I think that's testament to, yes, the impact we can we make on the ground, but also testament to, look, we have some really great relationships with head teachers and teachers that have that have stood the test of time and they really rely on us and they really count on us and that and that really matters in the kind of field of of what we're talking about which it shows that the young people that we work with genuinely do improve their grades genuinely do improve their confidence and their and their independence um so that's where we're on 2021 um 16 members of staff and and uh, 60 plus schools and hopefully the ambition would be that um, we could genuinely say that we have you know, shifted that dial on educational disadvantage. If we can genuinely get to a space when we can say, look, we have made education fair on this, in, in this country and genuinely can say that and can say that we've, we've done that on a kind of system-wide level, I think that would be really, that'd be really good. I'm really happy with that. Yeah, and when you talk about that and um, you share about, you know, when you were that 22-year-old with slightly idealised philosophy in it, and it sounds like there's a huge amount of maturing that's gone on, and congratulations on the turnover and the number of schools that you're supporting, and more importantly, the number of young people whose lives that you're supporting as well. That's just incredible to hear, um, so I just wanted to say that. Um, when you When you think out longer term and sort of step into that sort of being a visionary, and chartering charting a course um at what point do you think that we could potentially in the future have a, a sort of fairer system because you were sharing earlier that there's flaws in the educational system which of course there will be because of the size and complexity and so many different nuances to it but when you look out and your hope and aspiration for, for the uk let's start there first off um do you think that we could get to a, a fairer educational system and, and if so how long do you think that might take? Mm, I mean, I'm ever the optimist. Yes, I think I think definitely right. And I think part of that is I, you know, I think it's very easy to bash politicians. I mean, especially in, in COVID, but I think it's very easy to to bash people who, who make decisions. And I think undoubtedly, if you are the edu education secretary, you have got a very hard job. A school in Boston, Lincolnshire and rural deprivation is going to be very different than a school in East London to a school in North Devon with poor transport links to, and you know and all all the various different communities that exist within that from high concentrations of uh, people of colour communities to white working class to you know it's very complicated like you say Darren and I think that's important to be acknowledged that there is no one size fits all solution for school improvement that each school is its own kind of unique wonderful challenge and we, we have to kind of bear that in mind I mean I think kind of longer term for me there is something about um helping I, I think the answer lies with teachers fundamentally I think um the kind of 
you know, political landscape of we spent a lot of time talking about academies and local authority schools and grammar schools and that and that kind of stuff. But I almost feel that's a bit of a sideshow. I feel like the answer, if there was one, would be we need to treat teachers better. We need to value the profession of teaching, which at the moment still feels very much a profession that has quite low status and is kind of, you know, arguably looked down upon. Um, so I think part of the answer is we, we need to find a way of one kind of rewarding teachers better. I, and I don't mean just pay. I mean, kind of in, as a society, we need to improve the status of teachers and uh, for people to see, you know, how impressive the work that they are doing. And then the second part of that, I think coaching has a part to play here, which is it's about help. And I think it's through teachers, ultimately, uh, and may, and through young people through the work that we do, it's about empowering teachers and young people to have far more responsibility and far more autonomy to make to make decisions for their young people. I've never known a teacher to want their young person to to do badly. What I have known though are teachers and communities and parents where they have felt stuck in a system. So they have felt like you know, we work with a school in Claxon, which is a kind of coastal town where teachers will will say that this is an area of real low aspiration. And the aspiration is for people to work on the pier, is to is for people to work there. And subconsciously that kind of gets absorbed by teachers on the ground and, and in the school, and they don't push their their young people to to think a bit further afield. And I think there's a really interesting challenge of how and you know, we spoke about it off off air beforehand didn't we Darren how how do you as a teacher or as a parent encourage high expectations when it might be going against the norm of what that young person's community is like at the moment like how do you in a school in Plymouth say that there is nothing wrong with your dad being a mechanic because there isn't there isn't anything wrong with it but I also want to inform you and prepare you for anything that you want to do and and I think that's the the bit that I don't, I don't really know what the answer is, but I think that's the bit that needs uh, support in the system in that um, social mobility is quite a complicated issue, right? Because a lot of people associate social mobility with moving out or leaving your community behind or, you know, heading for the sunny shores of, of London. And obviously that's, that's not what it's about. It's about helping individuals be able to choose whatever path they want to go down and to give them the tools to be able to do that. Um, which at the moment, I think we we don't push for that challenge and that challenge of high expectation and high aspiration enough in the school system at the moment. Um, and I think that's in part because we don't empower our, our school leaders to to think bold enough and, and to do that. Um, but I, I think, you know, that I think there's a lot of nuance there. I think that's a very complicated challenge. No, I think it's fascinating, uh, and I'm I'm personally fascinated with with um, sort of whole systems and systems thinking and and pulling apart systems. Um, so I want to get into some of the how of what you do as well, because I think I think um, I completely agree. So, and I'm hoping that as a parent myself, um, one of the groups of people that I have de- definitely I've always had high respect for them anyway, but even more respect um for teachers through the fact that I've had to work with and homeschool with with my wife three children three daughters um 
and it's been really challenging like for me to have to relearn as a, as a dad um relearn or in some cases actually learn stuff that i didn't learn on my first trip through education school education um it's been really fascinating to actually have to kind of get into that learner mindset and uh, and to go on the journey and to really appreciate teachers so i think it's uh, i think that's really important and i think it's really also important that you talk about the mindset of the the young person and also the teachers about self-efficacy and setting high expectations and, and what we were talking about off air was that um my my eldest daughter especially who's just about to go into gcse complains that i've got ridiculously high expectations for her to become a doctor and all this sort of stuff and um whether she does or not it doesn't really matter but what i'm what i'm very consciously saying to her is you know you can go as far as you want to push you know and and i'm not saying doctors and i have huge respect for people that have got doctorates and doctors i'm not saying that they, you know that's the highest form of human being there is in the world you know she could go off and become an entrepreneur she can become whatever she wants but what i'm consciously doing as a person that didn't grow up in an environment where education was seen as a silver bullet um is is setting that expectation to say you can do it i believe in you and then the other thing that we've done is and I'll use maths as an example. So you know, Annalisa's maths, and she won't mind me sharing, was was the area that she wanted to develop the most. So we've worked with the teacher. We've also got her on somebody who's a mentor who works with her every um, every week, once a week, and we've worked with the teachers to understand what she needs to do. And and the outcome is that Annalisa just got eighty five percent in her maths test, where she was working at a much lower level um, six months ago, nine months ago, because we put focused attention in place. We've identified what she needs. We've listened to her and then we've put structured learning in place. And the other thing that I always reinforce, Robin, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is that I say to her, this is not about your teachers. Like, this is not about your teachers. This is about you having a learner mindset. It's not about being taught. It's about you being a learner. So I'd love to kind of experience that and, and hear your thoughts around that. And I also think, you know, we, you didn't mention it, but I'm sure you are thinking about it. Is But I think parents are really essential to this as well. You know, we take it really seriously in our family. Um, and, and again, because of my own experience of not necessarily uh, having parents that understood the value of education. They were wonderful, loving parents in different ways. But, you know, that's something else that I think is really important as well. So I'd love, love to kind of hear your thoughts on the whole system. And, and then also, what is it that Coach Bright actually does then? Yeah, I mean, so I think that point around mindset is is absolutely fascinating. We, in our kind of coach tutor training, we talk a lot about, we, we essentially lean heavily on Carol Dweck's growth mindset. And, you know, the idea that you don't have failure, you have kind of learning opportunities and, and, um, and, and that. And, um, and I think that's true, right? And I think the other bit that we've missed from the discussion is, is grades. And people kind of go one or two ways on grades. They either go, look, grades aren't important, you know, school of life you can get by through grit hard work and you know grades are just a letter or, or a number in today's kind of money and and I think there's something important to say about that which is I think that's true to an extent I think grades are the currency for success in a lot of ways in today's society and I don't mean that in terms of those who go on to Oxford are inherently better people or smarter or, or whatever what I mean by that is grades allow you doors, essentially. So you, you, if you don't get certain grades, you actually can't become a doctor or you can't choose a certain profession. So there's a degree of, unless we change that system, which it doesn't seem like we're going to change for, for a while, um, 
academic attainment it is important. It allows you the opportunity to um, try different things. It allows you the opportunity to, to flex in different areas. And that is important to say. I think sometimes you speak to educators and, and they go, look, look, it, do it doesn't really matter. We, you know, grades aren't, aren't the be all and end all. And, and, you know, commonly it comes from people who are quite middle class and, and their children are probably going to do quite well anyway. Um, so there is something important to say about that. I, I do feel that while they're not perfect, we do need to help young people achieve the best that they can in terms of their academic qualifications. But I think the other thing that that allows young people to do, and I think that's what you're talking about, Darren, with Annalise and, and maths, is it helps young people develop a, a growth mindset and a flexibility in their thinking. And, you know, I was quite lucky through school in that I, I did relatively well at school. And and I think I fell into the trap of, you know, getting to university and then finding it academically very challenging because I had never, I had never failed really. I, so I, I wasn't as resilient as I could have been. But I think if you can go through those processes at a young age, right, of actually trying something, not doing very well, getting back up and, you know, whether it's through a mentor or whatever, kind of having targeted support to, to get better at that, that challenge, that is only going to prepare you for for work and later life so much more that we all know that when it comes to having great teams and being a great team member it's people who are able to adapt under challenging circumstances it's people who are able to see moments of crisis as as opportunity and, and all of that and, and school can play a vital role in in doing that through shifting how we um talk about and and view failure and, and mindset and then the thing I would say about parents and COVID has really kind of shone a light on this as you've said Darren of kind of having to having to homeschool and I've got I've got a few friends who have kind of young children and you know the common trope is like oh gosh teachers work so hard and it's so difficult and you know I can barely go through a zoom meeting without um without someone coming in and knocking on the door and and, and stuff like this and um you can see there are parents who have been let down by the education system and therefore do not value it. And we see that in some of our school communities and really deprived areas where parents had a really rough time at school. And, you know, for whatever reason, like their teachers didn't support them enough or, or, or whatever it was. And they feel like the system is not there for them. And that's a real shame because undoubtedly we know, right, that a good parent is the like first role model is the first role model when it comes to hard work is the first role model when it comes to expectations is the first role model when it comes to many many things um and undoubtedly I think at the moment the way we see the education system is we see kind of schools as being the great lever to kind of figure it all out and you're right there is a missing jigsaw here which is the role that parents play and I don't even think it's got to do with any technical expertise I think it comes down to probably what we said at the start of the conversation having courageous conversations with your with your children actually sitting down with them and talking to them about how are they finding maths what are they struggling with what are they going to work on how can we get better at that thing how can we improve that thing and you know that doesn't take someone who's fantastic at fractions or fantastic at simultaneous equations it takes someone who genuinely invests kind of time and energy to talking about um how school life is and 
And I almost think that is, if you boil down what Coach Bright does at its heart, it's having those conversations. Yes, there is some tutoring. So our model is that we train university students as academic coaches, academic tutors to to work with a young person on a one-to-one, one-to-two basis. Um, and yes, there there is some teaching there. There is some teaching around fractions and, and simultaneous equations. But but far more, what it is, is a safe space for that young person to truly share how they feel about that subject and to truly share where they want to improve. Most young people want to do well. I fundamentally believe that. Um, and if given the space to just talk about it and to think about it with no with no judgment, with no sense of like, look, you know, you have to say the right things, you have to tell me the right things, with just a sense of, actually, you can express yourself how you want and you can talk me through the challenges you have. You can also talk me through like your, your dreams and where you want to go. Actually just providing those conditions I think is is half the half the battle really. Yes, obviously you will then need the the teacher to do the technical bit and you know all of that, but um just providing the conditions for a young person to feel safe and secure to express how they feel about that subject I think can be an absolute game changer and, and that's that's kind of the focus of our work and why we lean so heavily on relationships and building rapport and and doing that because we believe that if you can create that space um then that young person will feel like they trust you, but also will actually just do most of the work themselves, as as is the case with great coaching, right? The, the, the coachee will do most of the work themselves if you can just create that that safe space for them to to communicate and, and to be. Oh, it's wonderful. So how many, you talk about, is it specifically um, people that are in university that come back as tutors? And it's... Uh, Mainly, so mainly because um, of the flexibility that university, so it's a logistical point of university students are, are kind of freer, but also because uh, right kind of early doors in 2014, we wanted to create one, a model that was scalable, that, you know, wasn't just going to impact the 10 pupils in Elephant and Castle. It did have the capacity to to reach as many young people's lives as possible. But then too, we also wanted to build in this idea of a relatable role model that um, the young people that were being supported um, were only supported by people who were only two, three, four years ahead in their own education journey. And there's something really fascinating to me about that, which is when you see a Coach Bright program happen for the first time, you have two sets of people, right? You have the university student tutors and coaches who have you know, been trained, gone through safeguarding, you know, all, all of that. And then you also have the pupils who have um, applied and been selected and have gone on the programme. And before they meet, they both share the same characteristic, which is they're both terrified, essentially. They're both nervous of the other one. So you've got this this young person who's, who's scared about how this 19-year-old or 20-year-old might think of them and, you know, and all of that. And then you've also got this 19, 20 year old on the other side who's like, oh, I've never been back to school. And actually, will I be able to communicate with them? And I think there's this wonderful moment when they meet in the middle and you realise, or they realise, better yet, there's nothing that special about a university student and there's nothing that scary about a school pupil. And they build genuine human to human connections over, over just, you know, over just who they are and what they care about. And and there's something magical about that, about the work that we do, which is it's about bridging these two communities that would never meet. And then very quickly for them to realise that, 
you know, everyone is here to, you know, in aid of supporting a young person to, to be better and, and all of that. And, and actually just providing those conditions and that space for that to happen, um, real magic can come from it. Real magic of pupils who have done really badly in maths suddenly kind of improve in their engagement, real magic in people sharing that they've got challenges because their their friends always talk in class. You know, half of the academic stuff is um half the reason someone's struggling academically isn't the academic stuff, right? It's um I've like surrounded myself with the wrong group of friends or um oh I feel like my teacher picks on me and then you kind of unpack that a bit and you, and and um and creating that space where they can do that is um is part of the part of the challenge I think. Oh, wonderful. And and um so do the university uh um so, uh, sorry what do you call them not unit uh, tutors so the university tutors so do they get paid or is it a contributor role so a gifting role it's a gifting role and i think that yeah. again is an interesting area so all our university tutors coaches are volunteers and we have mm -hmm. 850 this academic year and because our social purpose um, is so heavily geared towards making social mobility a reality, getting rid of the kind of postcode lottery that exists in society at the moment, it therefore attracts a, cer a certain type of individual, right? It attracts a certain type of um, themselves, young, young person who wants to make education fairer, who is deeply passionate about, about doing that. And I think the wonderful thing for us is that they obviously gift their time and what we can offer them back is this wonderful experience with a young person and the ability to, to make impact with a young person. But also for us, we play a part in helping their kind of career journey, if you like. So they um they they get a kind of leadership accreditation from an external training body um, that we provide through the process. And it was really exciting to see that a lot of the tutors we work with end up becoming teachers themselves or end up working in the social sectors um supporting kind of other kind of vulnerable groups and kind of disadvantaged groups and um that's a real joy of our program that we probably don't spend a lot of time talking about is the effect we have on our university student cohort as well is that they you know they go on to do wonderful things and you know part of that is their ability to learn that initial coach training that like we said at the start that initial kind of communication training you mean you hear in the news all the time about millennials not being able to communicate or to work in teams and um the joy of coaching obviously is that i think that kind of really flips that on its head that you know you're training university students in how to how to self-reflect and self-analyze and 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 to do that no wonderful so um so if i if i get the maths right so you're supporting two thousand children so they support two to three people um, young people each is that is that roughly about right yeah roughly um we also the other thing I haven't mentioned is that we have a peer-to-peer a -peer program so we have a an in-school program where year 12s coach year 10s for example or, or sometimes it's younger kind of year 11s coaching kind of year 8s um which again is that same principle of kind of building relationships creating a kind of coaching program but the beauty of that one is that it's, it's in-house so you're really shaping the culture of that school so you're encouraging that school um to think about how they can build a coaching community and a coaching culture in in-house and i think you know at our best the university student program also does that it creates this this culture that's slightly different perhaps than what kind of um that school community is used to but definitely that peer-to-peer -peer program um 
does that too. And that's been a wonderful kind of byproduct of our, you know, it, it almost wasn't planned down really. It came about because there were some schools that were logistically difficult to reach. And then school leaders were like, oh, why don't we use year 12s instead of university students? And and that's how it kind of accidentally came about. But it's been a, a fantastic feature of our work now because it's um it's got that internal culture building piece that we never really thought about. Oh, I absolutely love it. So I um, sort of story I don't really share, but before Mo, way before Mo, so um, way back in, gosh, 2004, I think, 2003, three, four, when I first trained as a coach, I went back to my school that I, I went to, my um, uh, sort of senior school. And for three years, I was a coach that worked with them, worked with young people, started off with six young people. Um, and then I ended up working with a, the entire sixth form um, and one of the projects that we got we got um, going, and I think it probably still goes on, um, was from the sixth form identified it, was that they felt that the local community didn't trust the school, that the reputation of the school wasn't wasn't fantastic in the local area. So what they did was they went out to the the uh, they went out to the local shops and went and spoke to them all and said, look, you know, actually we've got this project where we want to support um, what's called Demeltshire Demel- House, which is um, uh, basically a, a, a home for kids that are sort of coming to the end of their life as children and um, they went and raised loads got loads and loads of um, presents from the local community and they got hundreds of hundreds of presents and um, what was so wonderful was that it came from the six formers uh, they went out and did it then they enrolled the whole school in it as well they got the whole school to start bringing presents in as well but they also got the local community and they got the police in and stuff like that and it had a really positive impact um, on the way that that school was seen and also their relationship with the police which was one of the community groups they were really worried about in the local shops um, and it had a real positive impact um, and that talks to what you're talking about this self-empowerment this actually actually we could, we could do something here to shape it so I love that and I love the sense that you're bringing the coaching culture into schools so why don't you share some of the you know seven eight years of data now and I know that you'll be you'll be gathering the data and I see you do an annual report every year um, so what, what are some of the kind of positives that you're starting to see when, when you work with a school? Mm. And just quickly going back on that, that story, Dan, that, I didn't know that about you. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think that's, again, speaks to God. I mean, young people are amazing, right? When you, when you work with them, that if you actually give, if you trust them and give them the tools to, to do stuff, they, they can do such fantastic things. And I, like, like, and I think that point around building that relationship with the police community, I think, just amazing that if you can give them the tools to to and the space to do that that they yeah incredible and in terms of in terms of data I think the one that we're particularly proud of is um so we like to measure kind of how our coach prep pupils do in relation to to grades to confidence to to independence and in relation to grades the one that we're particularly proud of is that young people who come on the coach prep program from disadvantaged backgrounds every year tend to outperform those who are also from disadvantaged backgrounds but but not on coach bright and also and also those that are just not on coach bright generally so i think by last count we found that pupils on coach bright uh, improved 0.4 of a grade more um than those than those not on coach bright essentially in the kind of same given time period, which is about a, a term, a term and a bit, um, which I think really flags to us that the work that we're doing isn't just a fluffy conversation. It's not just a case of 
you know, people meeting and, and having interesting conversations that actually leads to tangible results. And, and in some cases, tangible results that then can really shift a young person's direction and path. So um, we've had many of our young people kind of go on to be the first in their family to go to university or their first in their family to, to go on to um, certain types of industry. And the one that I always share is this wonderful pupil called um, um, called Esther, who um, uh, I met when she was seventeen, and uh, she was she was absolutely charismatic and bouncing up and down the corridors when when it was kind of when she was at school. But she really found school life quite difficult. She you know she wasn't geared academically. She you know it, she just found it very challenging, and she had an English coach. Um, with her and invariably like a lot of the conversation while it was on English also delved into I just find doing homework really challenging I just find like concentrating on uh, essay writing really difficult and um, she went through that whole process and uh, it was amazing to find that after year 13 she was the first in her family to go to the University of Manchester um, she was from South London originally, first in her family to go to Manchester actually as well. <laughs> um, and now she has actually come through the other side of that and she has graduated and she's um, she's actually becoming a, a social entrepreneur, setting up an empathy museum, which is um, which is fascinating. And um, that's amazing because that's that's just one example of like the many stories that we don't even we don't even do justice in, in capturing enough of really. I mean that that's come about because um, I. I played a part in kind of supporting Esther in, her, in that kind of pilot program, but there are so many more kind of stories like that. Um, so, so that kind of that impacts of supporting young people kind of really is that the dream and highlight of of the work really, and and obviously we kind of capture kind of smaller um, data surveys around people saying they've become more confident, people saying they've become more um, independent and resilient through the program, which is which is fantastic to see. But it's, you know, stories like Esther, when you hear about them or, or you see them get back in touch, I'm almost like one of those old teachers, Darren, when you get an occasional email out the blue and someone going, oh, yes, did you know I'm doing this? And you're like, oh, how wonderful. And it always reminds me that I should do that, do that to my teachers and do that, get other people to do that too. Because I think that's um, so fantastic to see when people are at a law firm or becoming a doctor or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, no, I was intrigued with that. So, I mean, uh, have you got a platform that you use? How do you how do you stay in contact with people? This is an area of work that we we're not there yet on, essentially. Um, so we're starting to develop. We're at the moment using an interim solution of creating LinkedIn groups where we invite our alumni to to join and and to be a part of. One of our challenges is a you know it's a very pragmatic one around kind of GDPR and young people and getting their kind of data permissions and, and, and things like that. Um, so, so far, a lot of it has been through um, has been through those LinkedIn groups and also through our relationships with, with schools so that we can kind of track where that young person has kind of gotten onto. But I think that's a, that's one of the big areas for us to think about moving forward is that, you know, fair enough when we started, when there were 20, 30 pupils a year. We're now talking about 2,000 pupils, you know, 3,000 pupils each year. And there's a challenge there of how do we, one, support them when they're, when they finish the program, similar to the, to the Mo community, right? It's not just a course, it's a community. How do we build that into our alumni program? How do we then get that, 
get people like Esther to come back to give talks, to come back to deliver workshops, because that's ultimately what it's all about. It's not about the Coach Bright team, you know, high on above delivering work. It's building this community. And I think that's the that's the next challenge for us, really, is how do we build that into our into our model? So um I'll be I'll be giving you a call many a time, Darren, I imagine over the next few years. Yeah, no, it's um I've I've been talking to various different um platform providers and, and what I find, I mean, obviously Mo's in a different financial position to you. It's just uh, just finding one that's got the right financial structure for us. Um, you know, when I put my AC hat on, we've we've invested in in a platform. We're just about to launch it in the next couple of months. We're just we signed it um three weeks ago, um, which plays into our kind of membership management solution. But again, it's really costly. That's the reality of it. Um, so you have to have a certain level of revenue in order to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have the solution at the moment. So when you come across one um, and, and a platform that can scale with you, um, I think that would be great. And, and yeah, I mean, when I listen to this, Robin, I think there's a lifetime relationship that you can create with people. Um, and, you know, it's again, to, to sort of from a Mo perspective, we never really gave consideration to that community part when we started out. And now I'm much more conscious of it. Um, so there's a whole load of people that have just floated away from Mo and we might never hear from them again. And some people never want to hear from us again for whatever reasons. That's all good. But what I'd love to have is is actually a way to kind of stay in connection so that we can, as I shared with you at the very beginning of this, is just celebrate the stories of people like yourself that, that have had some sort of interaction with Mo and have, have benefited from it or have contributed to it and have now gone on to create, you know, inc- you know, incredible organizations that are having real impact. So um, definitely definitely on the lookout for that so very happy to kind of keep that conversation going so let us know when you find the next next thing the um when you when you look at what you're doing so in terms of the funding model if i've understood it rightly at the moment it's funded through directly through schools so head teachers and deputy heads and teachers are really essential to you is that right so that's how it's funded through individual schools correct yes absolutely so um we are so our entire model and our entire income has been through school sales um, and, and actually university sales. So we also work with universities in the local area too. And um, that was really important early doors for me personally, that we, as a founder, I wanted our work to be driven from a place of, look, we need to make impact and we need to prove that the work is good and that we can be self-sustaining just on the back of essentially kind of customer sales. And it happens that our, our customer in this case is, is the head teacher. And that was really important because I've seen that many in the past, many kind of charities and social enterprises have fallen foul of kind of going big on grant funding and donations early doors and then kind of not maintaining that quality and then essentially being reliant on constantly grant funding. And um, having said that, we are actually becoming a charity. And I think that's important to say. And that's mainly because I think hopefully it's been evident through this um through the podcast that our work is is for a charitable purpose and is for a social purpose at, at its heart and um there was something really important to me about really enshrining that kind of legally in the organization to make sure that you know if I was to ever leave or, or whatever that um that kind of support for disadvantaged young people would kind of sit at the heart of sit at the heart of what we do um and the other part is that um we probably are missing a trick of, of um, not realising certain kind of grant funding, fundraising kind of ambitions that, that we can. But regardless of that, our model will always be geared from a kind of quality first, revenue kind of first kind of uh, way of thinking. And 
because I think for us, what that does is that it enables us to really prioritize the quality of our programs first and foremost and not get distracted by kind of other other avenues that actually having to be held accountable each year by by the school and for them to go, look, if it's good, we'll do it again. If it's not so good, we won't do it again. That has enabled us to really build in. We have to deliver the best possible outcomes for our young person. For our young people which obviously we, we would want to do anyway on a philosophical level but because it's been grounded in the way that our model works it really focuses the attention for, for not just me but you know our entire kind of staff team and, and volunteering team as well that you know delivering good work will mean kind of more work in the future and that that really matters no that's wonderful and um I, lo- I love it obviously you know as you know that the way that most structured is sort of that purposeful entrepreneurship as I would call it so it's it's kind of got an entrepreneurial commercial sense but actually everything goes back into the organization and it has to wash its face you know it has to um, for it to grow it, it has to do it based off adding value to, to that people are willing to pay um, and obviously in our model we've got the two doors so some people get gifted and some people make a contribution, um, you know, so that I love that. I think that's really, really fantastic. So in terms of the, the charitable aspect, so you're going to keep a, you're going to keep the social, you know, the social vehicle, but, and you're also going to have the charitable, charitable vehicle, or are you going to shift it over to a sort of charitable vehicle? Yeah, it will just be, we will just have one charitable mm-hmm. vehicle, a CIO. Um, yeah. And, um, but I, I think ultimately the place we'd want to get to Darren is, it's similar to Mo, a kind of two doors approach. So we would have, we would have the majority of schools um, paying for the service, and then there might be community work with certain schools that can't afford it that we would then, you know, offer on a on a subsidy basis or or even pro bono basis. And that's that's probably the stage we want to get to, um, uh, kind of longer term. And I think that two two doors sounds really um. Sounds really catchy. Might steal that. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, well, it's, um, we we stole it. So Simon Simon Hampel is also on this podcast. You'll hear Simon's story. I think you'll really enjoy it if you've not met Simon. So he was the CEO of Right to Sight, uh, which gave sight back to 20-odd thousand people in his last year. And uh, they had the two doors. And I, I met Simon as I was thinking about Mo in 2010 and just fell in love with Simon and said, look, I'm going to create this organization and I'd love to to take the two-door philosophy and use it at the heart of the organization. And, um, he, you know, he's, he's still a trustee, he, you know, long-term be a trustee. Um, so it comes from right to site. So don't worry, you're not stealing it from Mo. We've we've absolutely borrowed it because we think it's such a wonderful concept. Um, I mean, really, honestly, it's just so fabulous to hear what you're doing. And it's, it's great. So you're at 2% at the moment, I think, in terms of the schools, roughly. Um, ambition to 10%. Um, what, uh, what about going beyond beyond you know the english shores the uk shores is there ambitions to kind of look more globally uh i I think i'd have to consult you on that darren i think like oh maybe ultimately i think there's something interesting for me about you really need to understand the culture of the place that you're working in to be able to do good work and i think that's what we've grappled with on a much lower end kind of regional level that schools in the southwest are vastly different than schools in london you know one has urban deprivation challenges another has rural deprivation and and those are vastly different that a school in north devon will have really difficult transport links um the teachers that will be there will be will be lifers essentially will be there for kind of decades and decades while a school in london might have the same 
uh, free school meal statistic, you know, which we use to measure poverty in this country for in education. But, um, you know, the teachers will leave after every three, four years. It's quite a young staff force. Um, the pupils might actually be far more aspirational because they're, you know, they're next door to the London Eye and, and, and whatever. Um, so there is something fascinating to me there about we've spent a lot of time trying to understand the individual culture of the places that we work. So any move abroad, we would we would have to spend time kind of understanding that international context before I think I would feel certain or comfortable that um, uh, our work would be applicable. Having said that, I think undoubtedly um, coaching is going to become ever more present in the way we think about education and and you know and and arguably it already is right that like parents intuitively do it good teachers intuitively do it but um increasingly i think we you will see a lot of head teachers now will have coaches will have executive coaches who who work with them just like any leadership coach really with a ceo but increasingly i think we will see it go further down the school system and all the way down to, to pupils which is where coach bright is right that ultimately we'll ultimately get to a stage i think where more schools are run with a coaching lens where you know you really put responsibility in the hands of the young people you really trust them to make the right decisions and we really kind of build that into the system. And that's that's not a UK thing. I think that that is going to be an increasingly kind of global movement. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And um, I think, as you know, you know, I was very privileged to be mentored by Sir John Whitmore. I was very close to John. And, uh, you know, I always feel like myself and Catherine and Alex, you know, from the AC and the team in Mo, we sort of carry that torch forwards because John always said to us, um, we would have won when we don't talk about coaching anymore. Mm. So, you know, 7.5 billion, 7.8 billion people on the planet. Um, I think there's a huge amount to do. And, and I think from a, you know, if you want me to go sort of deeper, sort of more philosophical, is that I think we have to do it because I, I see coaching raises awareness and consciousness. And hopefully it, it will give the human tribe the opportunity to actually look after this planet mm. because we really need to, we really do need to kind of make some shifts. Um and I think we can do that by gently asking questions and being a great witness and a friend and a challenger to people. Uh, and I think if we can start with young people and give young people, and I think a lot of young people have got these, when I think about my daughters, they're global in mindset. They, you know, they, they live in a global world. They're connected and interconnected already. Um, and they've got friends all over the world because of the way that they interact socially, which I just, you know, is so fascinating to me. My friendship group when I grew up was the council estate, my local friends who typically lived one door next to me and, and two doors just opposite me. And they were, that was my friendship group. You know, now kids are inter interconnected, which is, I think, really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, and I do agree with you in terms of understanding the context and, you know, schools are schools you know education is education I think that's that's the other thing isn't it it's just um there is there are differences that you know I'm hearing from you and I would listen to you with all your depth of experience um and ultimately we're talking about young people and how we help them develop and grow and believe in themselves so um look sounds like you're you've put a really fantastic hack in place for that looking at yourself so you know we've looked at coach bright we've looked at the community and it's it's really wonderful to hear that complex system and community that you you're interacting with when you when you think about yourself um, and you go back and think about that 22 year old uh, and now think of yourself as that 30 year old who I think, you know, you just shared, you're just about, you, you're about to or you're getting engaged um, is, uh, you know, what are some of the life lessons and entrepreneurial lessons that you've 
you've gathered? Mm. Uh, yes, soon to be 30, Darren, in August. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to do that to you, Robin. I mean, I mean, I know it's a really a wonderful, I mean, terrible moment in life, you know, <laughs> turning 30, leaving your 20s behind. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, and it's, it's a quote that um, I've, I've been thinking about throughout this podcast, actually. It's one that um, if any team members hear this, they'll be like, oh, he keeps on banging on about this one, which is um, the, it's from Martin Luther King. And he says the the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, and mm. something fascinating there because a lot of people think that means there's an inevitability that that the world is just going to become more just. The arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, but actually, what Dr. King was saying um, has often been misquoted. Is that he he means you have to bend it towards justice. You have to actively do something to push towards the thing you want to see. And if there was any kind of lesson to be learned from, you know, Coach Bright and, and the work that I've done is, is there is something about you can't you can't wait, you know. And I and I think about that quite a lot. That if I hadn't have done Coach Bright, would someone else have done a, a coaching intervention in schools? And and I, and I think the the honest answer is, is probably not. Is actually we'd just be where we are and that's the real driver for me is that it's not that and my brother thinks slightly differently on entrepreneurship he he's very much of the opinion that you know um you can't tell people stuff if you tell them then they'll steal it and and do that or like uh or you know it'll just happen anyway and and I don't I don't really believe that I believe that if you really are passionate about something and you really think you've got a solution for something you need to, and you care about it, you need to be the one to put it out into the world because if you don't do it, it's actually far more likely it just won't happen. <laughs> you know, it, no one else will do it. So there's a degree of, you just have to go for it. And I think that's quite an interesting freeing sensation when when you think about it. And then I think the um, really obvious one for me, and it's it holds true as much today as it did, you know, in 2014, is you absolutely just have to surround yourself with much better people than than you really, and and that's you know that's true of, of you, Darren. I remember us having conversations all the way dating back to 2015, 16, when when you know you you kind of subconsciously coached me, and I remember you mentioning that oh you know the thing that you have, Robin, is is vision, and I think that's that's great, and you know and and with that vision comes surrounding yourself with people who can help kind of one execute that but also to like collaborate and improve on that on, on that vision and I think I'm really lucky to say that I've got a, a fantastic team with people who are far more compassionate than me far more organized far more able to to build relationships and also in my kind of wider community that um there are kind of mentors and advisors and supporters who I think just out of sheer goodwill are happy to are happy to help and happy to make introductions and happy to to play a part in um in making coach bright a success and making education fairer and i think that's the the lesson that i feel when speaking to any kind of young or new entrepreneur i can give is if the more people you tell the more people can get on board and, and can help out really that there's nothing wrong with was sharing even just a nugget of the idea it will, it will never be perfect and it will never feel like you know you've come to the finished solution like you know still now seven years on like am I ever satisfied with where we are probably not um uh my partner and I are 
religiously watch the um the Hamilton musical, which you know some people know, and there's there's a line in there that goes like, "Will you ever be satisfied?" And you know, I I don't ever feel satisfied with coach, but I always feel like we can we can do more and we can be better, and you know something can be improved. Um, but I think if you ever let that act as a uh, as a barrier to communication, as a barrier to to putting it out there, I think that's a real that's the bit where that's a real shame because really an imperfect idea is fantastic because it allows others to come in and collaborate and be creative and to, to make it even better and I think that's something that hopefully I've kind of embodied as even as Coach Bright has grown that we want to seek as much input and be humble and getting as much opinion as, as possible from as many different people um, so so the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice but you have to do the bending I think so you know you really do that and then also putting yourself out there and surrounding yourself with better people who will drive the idea in far better ways forward than you could do just individually. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I really 100% sign up to that. <clears throat> I really do. And uh, I love that. The uh, I've, I've heard that quote before, um, but I love the way that you've, um, you've brought that to life further. And I think, yeah, just to sort of share my own um, take on, on what you were sharing around an idea. I think there's, there's, millions billions of ideas every single day of our lives um and actually i don't think you need to be have a scarcity mindset about it because i think what it takes to actually create a business is um so much energy and good fortune and relationships and mentors and you know just sheer darn hard work that for the vast majority of people it's like actually that's not for me uh, you know, I've heard it quoted as 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Mm. And, um, you know, you were sharing at the very beginning of this about when you run a small business, it's, it's you eat, sleep and breathe it. You know, your parents is a great example of that. And, um, you know, that's that's quite a price to pay. And other people don't, you know, people who haven't got the natural sort of entrepreneur or business mindset and beliefs, you know, don't want to do that. So I've never had a sense of scarcity around sharing ideas. And I've got a really simple reason for that is that, the idea I share with you today, I'll improve in one minute's time. Mm. And it's really difficult to keep up when you've got somebody that thinks like that. Um, and the other quote that came to me as I was listening to you is imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So, um, you know, we need a world where people are doing good stuff and doing it in what I call high fidelity systems. So these highly networked systems of deep collaboration um, you know, and we need more of that. So keep doing what you're doing and, and hopefully others will start to follow and start to improve. And, and then that will inspire you and your team to kind of push on forwards. And then finally, completely agree with you. It's about as the founder of an organization, um, that humility, that, that focus on excellence and mastery. And it really isn't about you. Com couldn't agree with you more. It's always about that team of people. They're the people that are, are so critical. Um, they're the ones that really take it forwards often. Um, because most of us founders have got huge amounts of fundamental flaws as well as wonderful strengths. So good to focus on on other people's strengths. Um, I've really loved our conversation. Um, it's been really lovely to reconnect with you. So are there, are there any um, hopes, wishes or any call outs for for anyone who might happen to, to come across this pod adventure and go, oh, Robin sounds like an amazing person? Um, how do they connect with you? Anyone that you'd specifically like to kind of speak to or be connected to um, in terms of job roles, just, yeah, your opportunity to kind of put a bit of a call out to the Mo community. So, uh, so first off, our, our, the team would, um, 
would completely massacre me if I hadn't mentioned this. So our Twitter and Instagram is at CoachBrightUK. So please do please do follow us there. And we are actually very luckily during COVID, we are we are hiring. So if um, anyone is interested in what we do and also happens to be based in the Southwest, um, we're hiring for a primary program officer to lead a lot of our, our primary work in the Southwest. And um, and also always on the hunt for, for volunteers who care about making education fairer, who want to try and take a coaching approach to education. So if that's of any interest, please do just have a look on our, on our website at um, coachbright.org. Um, and of course, like happy to happy to share and reach out and, and talk to anyone if um, anyone was thinking about being a, a social entrepreneur and all the kind of trials and tribulations with that. As as Darren mentioned, I think it can be quite a all consuming and, and lonely journey. So if anyone's, you know, wants to check in and have a chat, like I would, I would love to do that, too. So um, please do please do reach out too. Wonderful. And I'll put a plug in for you. If there's anyone that's uh, related to um, teachers and schools where, you know, you've got um, areas of deprivation or, you know, young people that are coming from difficult backgrounds, then Robin sounds like your man to get in con contact with him, Robin and his team. Um, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your time and for your your wisdom and sharing your insights and story. And it's just, it's so wonderful to kind of reconnect with you and to kind of hear what you and the team are creating and, and the benefits uh, and the stories it's creating in young people's lives. So well done to you and all the team. Thanks, Darren. Really appreciate being on. And thank yeah, thank you for asking me. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Wonderful. Take care. Well, what an inspiring conversation. That was really, really fantastic to hear. And so proud we are here at Mo of one of our graduates of all of our graduates, but of Robin in particular, who's made such an astounding impact on the lives of so many others. A particular highlight for me was uh, the way that he described the Martin Luther King quote. I don't think I've ever heard it described that way. And he's so right. We have to do the bending. We have to step up and make a change because if we don't, who else is going to? Really, really fantastic points raised. If you would like to know a little bit more about Coach Bright, perhaps you're a parent or a teacher or have some connection to a school, you can get in touch with them at Coach Bright UK. You can also find them online at coachbright.org. That's coach, C-O-A-C-H-B-R-I-G-H-T. You can also find the information in the description below this podcast. If you happen to be a Mo graduate that's listening and you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch with me at maisie at mofoundation.com. That's M-A-I-S-I-E at mofoundation.com. And we can set up a time to delve into your story. We hope that you've enjoyed listening today and we look forward to seeing you here on the next one. Bye for now. <laughs>